Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, grab your Bibles and meet me in Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1091 in that Bible. And we started off a new series last week that we've called Ecclesia, which is a fun word to say, Lessons from the Book of Acts. And we wanted to just take a book of the Bible and start to work through it. So we started in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 last Sunday, and we're going to keep moving through this for the next couple of months. We'll break for summer, and then we'll see where we go next. But uh, Ecclesia is a Greek word that we unpacked last week. It's not something that we say typically, but it gets translated in various different ways uh, outside of the Bible at the time the Bible was written, uh, a called-out group, a community, a gathering, an assembly. It's the picture of a, a get-together that is different from ordinary life, a get-together that's in a bit of a different mode, a different pace, a different zone. Uh, and ecclesia in the New Testament, when it's used there, is always translated as church. It is the, the Greek word that we use for church. And so as we look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church. It is where the church is born. It it is about the Holy Spirit moving through the church in order to fulfill the mission of God, to see Jesus go to the nations. And so we are looking at who we are as a community. One of the things that we can do is when we go back to the beginning of the church, we say that's kind of the church in its purest form because it's closest to Jesus and to the people who knew him personally. The teaching is there at its purest and everything that follows is uh, directly out of people who are face to face with Jesus. And so we see a lot and learn a lot about what is the church supposed to look like? What is the ecclesia really about? What is this community that we are a part of? Um, what can we learn by going back there? So we are actually going to uh, be skipping a section. We were going to just go through verse by verse. Uh, then that pesky Randy Friesen decided to come. And when he came, we had to readjust our schedule. We were, that was sarcastic, by the way. He didn't laugh that hard at that one. Uh, we were very happy to give a Sunday to Randy Friesen, but we were going to start the series that week. And so everything got kind of bumped and pushed back and adjusted. So as we were trying to figure out what to do with that, uh, we decided we're just going to actually skip over Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26. So you can certainly read that on your own. Uh, last week we did Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11, and that is Jesus who is resurrected and who is spending time with his apostles. He spends 40 days with them to give kind of his last instructions before he returns to heaven. And as he returns to heaven, the last thing he says to them is, uh, don't start the mission yet. You go to Jerusalem and you wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, you wait there, and, and when the Spirit comes, then you go, and you start to engage in the mission, and then Jesus returns to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, which we're going to skip over, uh, just to catch you up in terms of context, the Bible says that the apostles uh, are there, there. Uh, they're in the upper room. And the upper room, uh, this is a picture of what is the traditional upper room in Jerusalem. It probably wasn't the actual upper room, but the upper room was probably something like this. It was a large room. It was a gathering place. And it's where the apostles uh, had the Last Supper with Jesus. It's where Jesus washed their feet. It's where when Jesus died and they went into hiding, it's where they were hiding out. And as they were hiding out, it's where Jesus appeared to them. And it is where they go after Jesus returns to heaven. It's where they go and they begin to wait for the promise 
that Jesus said was coming. Verse 14 of that passage says they all join together constantly in prayer. They jump into that 10-day prayer meeting that Randy talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Bible says Jesus was on earth for 40 days with the apostles. Pentecost is going to happen at 50 days after Jesus was born, so there's, or after Jesus resurrected, I should say. And there's a 10-day period in there where the apostles gather in the upper room, all join together constantly in prayer. Jesus has said, don't do anything without the Holy Spirit. So for 10 days, they shut themselves away in this room and they pray and they pray and they pray and they pray and they do it together. It's not just one or two of them. They are joined and united together in prayer. When was the last time you prayed for one day about anything? And these guys gather for 10 to pray for God to do what he said he would do. Another thing that happens in this thing is, uh, I'm losing this, Dan, it's not working. Uh, a new apostle gets chosen. So Judas was one of the 12, and as Judas is one of the 12, uh, he betrays Jesus, he takes his own life, and as that happens, he, uh, there's an empty spot now around the table. There's an empty spot, there's supposed to be 12, and there's only 11. And so they have a discussion on who are we gonna pick to fill that empty seat. So they narrow it down to two people who are men of good character, who have been with Jesus, who knew him personally, and then the Bible says they cast lots to decide which one it's gonna be, which is basically flipping a coin and we don't know exactly how they did that back then but uh, there is a precedent of that in the Bible in the Old Testament the book of Proverbs talks about this that if you want to know what the Lord wants to do you can cast lots and so they they flip a coin whatever the equivalent of that was you're trusting that God will make it land where it's supposed to land it lands on Matthias and so Matthias becomes a new apostle and so they are doing what one of the ways they know how to discern God's will uh, but interestingly, this is the last time we ever see that happening in the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is about to come, and then it's just, oh, the Holy Spirit's actually just going to tell you. The Holy Spirit's actually just going to talk to you. Uh, you're not going to have to look to signs and kind of those types of things. The Holy Spirit is coming, and he will be the one who leads you from now on, so we don't see that anymore. So that is the context. That is the background of our text today. Uh, Jesus had said in our verse we looked at last week, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says God wants to do with the Holy Holy Spirit, what you went through when you went through your baptism, just to get dunked, immersed, washed, cleansed in water. He wants to have, wants you to have that experience with the Holy Spirit as well. So when I came to Jesus, I was 18 years old. I'd grown up in church my whole life. I had uh, heard the gospel 10,000 times in 10,000 different ways. I'd been at church every Sunday because my parents made us go. Uh, believed in God in a general way. I'm sure if you asked me about Jesus, I would say I believed in him, but uh, was in no way acknowledging him, was in no way living for him, was not leaving my sin, certainly, uh, and was living my life the way I wanted to live it. And so one day I was at lunch with a friend, uh, and they were a Christian. They were talking to me about uh, just some things that the Lord was doing in their lives, and I was politely listening. I mean, I, I got enough of that at home. I didn't really want it at lunch, but uh, this day was completely different because I'd heard the scriptures before. I'd heard the gospel before. I'd heard about sin before. I'd heard about all these things, but as they were sharing, all of a sudden, as I sat there, I was just very, very, very aware of my sin in a way that I never had been before. I mean, I knew I was doing it, but I didn't care that I was doing it. I was enjoying it, if anything else. But in this moment, all of a sudden, I was very, very aware of my sin. 
And I was very aware that I was not right with God. And I was very aware that if anything were to happen to me and I were to go stand before him, I would be in a very rough place. And uh, all of that, again, I knew all that stuff. I'd heard it all before. But on this day, it just pierced my heart. And so I went home that day and I got down on my knees. And the only thing I could think of to pray or, or knew to pray, uh, I just said, Jesus, I am sorry for what I've done and I want to know you. And there was no, you know, clear theology. There was no four spiritual laws. There was no formal sinner's prayer or anything like that. It was just, I was just aware that I had displeased him with my life, uh, but I was wanting something to be different. And so, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for what I've done, and I want to know you. And then it felt like I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like, I, I get that word. That is what it felt like. It just, all of a sudden, God was so real to me that it's like he was in the room with me. I was very aware uh, of the presence of God in a way that I never had before, even after a lifetime of going to church. And it was just, it felt like waves were washing over me. And where there was guilt and shame, it was washing away. And where there was uh, hurt and pain, that was feeling stronger. And where there was doubt and anxieties and fears, that was being replaced by hope and love. And it just felt like water just washing over me, wave after wave. And I got up off my knees that day, and nothing was the same ever again after that. I'd had an encounter with God that was tangible. I'd had an encounter with God that was real. And I've had other such encounters in my life, and that's always going to be my favorite one and the most important one. Uh, but God did not just call us to know about him. He wants us to know him on a personal level. The Apostle Paul's prayer in Philippians was not, I want to know about Christ more. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know him in a real and personal way. And as we go through the book of Acts, there is an expectation that the people of God will be having encounters with God. There's just an expectation on every page that the Holy Spirit is real and he is speaking and he is leading and he sends his presence and he moves through giftings and other people, certainly. But there's just an expectation that if we are following after Jesus, we are going to be hearing God's voice and we're going to be filled with the Spirit and we're going to have encounters with him that are real. That's an expectation there. And I know you maybe have had some of those types of things, maybe not just like mine, because your story is your story, but times where you go, wow, I have just had an encounter with God in some way. I have just met him in some way that is real. And if that's not you, if you haven't had one of those yet, guess what you can be praying for? Amen. Amen. There is an expectation in the book of Acts that the ecclesia will be people who are filled with the Spirit, who walk with God, who know his voice, and who experience his power in a real experiential way. That's the expectation of the ecclesia in the book of Acts. And so Jesus had said, this is what the Father wants to do with you. He wants to take you and just dunk you in the Holy Spirit. He wants you filled to overflowing. He wants you washed and cleansed and filled with his presence and filled with his power. And when you're filled with his presence and filled with his power, that's when you go out and share Jesus in a way that people get saved. Because it's his power that's doing all the work. So let's take a look at our text. That's plenty on the backstory. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had said, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's how that happens. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So just to note a couple of things. One, how good did I nail all those languages and funny words? That's pretty good. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, literally praising me, not the Lord at all. But this is uh, the day of Pentecost, the, really the birthday of the church. This is where the church really officially starts. And it has been a process, and it's all been in prep, and it's all going in that direction. But this is really the day that it starts. Jesus has gone to heaven, and now the Holy Spirit has come down and filled his people. And Jesus had said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you guys are going to go and keep doing the things that I've been doing. That when Jesus left, that wasn't going to be the end of Christ-like ministry here on earth. It's you guys are going to be filled with the Spirit, and you will go do the Christ-like ministry all over this earth. And so it's the beginning of the church here, and there's a, a beautiful picture of what's coming with languages and, and different things. We'll come back to that in a second. But this is where the Pentecostal movement gets its name, because on the day of Pentecost, this is what happened. And so the Pentecostal movement just has believed, along with the charismatic movement, that what happens in the book of Acts is not just a history lesson, that that's what church is supposed to be like. They just said, yeah, we don't just believe that was for one time in one place, that God has sent his spirit to empower us for mission. The mission is not over yet, so we need that same spirit to empower us in the same way. And so Pentecostals look at the book of Acts and say, how can we be more like that? How can we be more filled with the Spirit? How can we walk in the gifts more? How can we learn how to hear his voice better? There's an understanding in that stream of the church that says we can't do this without the power of God, and so we're going to seek the power of God. And one thing I'll say about the Pentecostals, they fast and they pray like nobody else. They just understand that if things are going to change, the Holy Spirit has to do it. Uh, we don't have the power in ourselves to change the culture. We don't have the power in ourselves to, to convince our loved ones to come to Jesus. We don't have the power in ourselves to grow the church or take Jesus to the community. We have a role to play in all of those things, but the power to actually do it only comes from the Holy Spirit. And so our main job is to seek the power that God has promised, to seek to be filled, to seek to be renewed. And so as we go through our text today, we're just going to go through it verse by verse this morning. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So Pentecost is festival time in Israel at this time. And in the Old Testament, it's typically called the festival of weeks or the festival of harvest. There were many festivals and feasts that Israel was to celebrate. And God actually said in his law, a bunch of times a year, I want you guys to get together and party. Like a bunch of times a year, I want you to gather together and worship together and celebrate together. And so the festival of weeks is what's happening in Israel at this time. And there, there were three times a year 
when devout Jewish people were expected to go to Jerusalem. You had to make a pilgrimage. And so three times a year, wherever you lived, you were expected to go to Jerusalem, you would go to the temple, you would bring your tithes that you had been saving, and you would give those as your worship to the Lord. You would repent of your sins, and sacrifices would be offered to just kind of set you right with the Lord. And then you would eat together and see long-lost family that you never saw before, and it it really was a celebratory time. So three times a year, Jewish people did that. They did that at Passover, which happened uh, about 50 days earlier, and that's when Jesus was killed. That's why there were so many people in Jerusalem on the weekend that Jesus was killed. The Festival of Weeks happens after that, and then a few months after that would be the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. So three times a year, you would go on these pilgrimages. This particular one that's happening in this passage is the Festival of Weeks, sometimes called the Festival of Harvest, sometimes called the Day of First Fruits. And in Deuteronomy, it says this is really kind of what this is about. Deuteronomy 16, 9 to 11, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. So for seven weeks, you do your harvesting, then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you, and rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. That last part means the temple where he would uh, eventually uh, consecrate and, and call us to, call the Jewish people to. And so there was this thing built into the law that says, uh, once a year, you take your harvest, you go to Jerusalem, and you celebrate. And it's a time of incredible thanksgiving. It's a time of joy because God has given you harvest. God has given you uh, food. He has provided for your family. And so when they would take their crops off the field, they would keep a portion of it, the first fruits. So before they ate anything or sold anything, they would take a portion and put it aside and say, next time we go to Jerusalem, we are bringing that and we are presenting it to the Lord as our offering. So we don't literally do that with grain today. Uh, We do this with our tithes and offerings, but in our house, the first 10% of our income, uh, before the government takes any, before social insurance, before we save anything, before we pay our bills, the first 10%, the first fruits, is something that we bring and we offer to the Lord. We offer that as our worship. So Israel was to come literally with grain, and that grain would go to the temple, and it would help feed the priests, it would help feed the poor, so in a practical way, it's helping maintain the ministry, but the main point of it is that it is your worship. It is an offering by which you come and say, God, you have given us all our food. We give you a portion of it as our thanksgiving. And we're just acknowledging you as the Lord who gives us everything. We're acknowledging you as the one who has provided for us. And so where the word Pentecost comes from, uh, if you see in this text, seven weeks after the harvest starts, uh, seven weeks times seven days is 49 days. Uh, And then on the 50th day, you would celebrate this festival. And so 50 in the Greek is Pentecost's day. Uh, I think I said that right. And so this is the 50. That's what they would, that was kind of the nickname for it. This festival was the 50th. The 50th day, uh, you would celebrate what uh, God had done for you. So that's what's happening in Jerusalem as the story kicks off, is that it is packed with pilgrims from all over the world. Jewish people who have been scattered are all coming to Israel. They're bringing their food with them, and they are presenting it to the Lord. They're offering their sacrifices, and so there's a reason why the town is buzzing in this moment. Uh, Another aspect of that first verse that I think is worth noting, it says that on the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered together in one place, and that's such a key to this idea of church, because honestly, you at home 
can get better teaching than you get here on a Sunday morning just because we have a world of the best teachers on earth available to us in books and podcasts and different things. You can get amazing worship times at home through Spotify. If you don't like the songs we do, you can craft your perfect song list in the versions that you like, and you will love every song on there because you put it there. And we can, you know, we can do certain things. We can pray by ourselves, of course. We can meet with God by ourselves, and we should. But there is a moving of the Spirit that only happens when the ecclesia gets together. These guys had been gathering for 10 days together, praying together, praying constantly together. And when the Spirit comes, it's not when Peter's at his house and Thomas is at his house and Barnabas is at his house. The Spirit came when they were all together. And they all received the Spirit together. And there is something about the community that is so important. And I can meet with God on my own, certainly. I can be filled with the Spirit on my own. But there is a moving of the Spirit that can only happen in the community. When we join our faith together, and we join our prayers together, and we join our gifts together, and we serve one another together, and we engage in mission together, we need one another for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to move. It happens when we do that together. So they are all gathered together. They are praying together. This is going on. And the Holy Spirit shows up in a dramatic way, verses 2 and 3. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Uh, so this is tangible. It's not just like... Uh, Oh, did you have a sense of the Lord's presence? Like, this is very clear and very obvious. There is an audible part of this. There is a visual part of this. Like, there is a lot going on here. And it's a power that is showing up that is undeniable. And Jesus had told them in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And when he comes at Pentecost, he comes in power. And he comes in a way that is undeniable. That no one could be sitting there saying, like, I'm not really getting anything out of this prayer service. Like, no. Like, there is something powerful going on. And I've never had an experience like that, certainly. And maybe you have, or maybe you haven't. And I'm not trying to say it needs to look a certain way or not. But it's understanding what are places in this where we understand we cannot do any of this without the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot live a holy life just based on my own willpower and drive alone because my willpower will always run out. I need the Holy Spirit to help me to live this life. As we've talked about, we can't engage in the mission of God just because we are going to work really hard at it and we're going to find out all the latest strategies and we're going to make something happen and we're going to just push until it breaks through. It's like, no, we need the Holy Spirit's power. We cannot do it on our own. And some of us are saying, well, I've been, you know, I've been talking to my kids about Jesus for years and they're still not coming back to Jesus. And, I, and I've been talking at them and talking at them and talking at them. And that's not a bad thing. But I promise you, because that was my experience, my parents had been talking to me for 18 years. But when the power of the Holy Spirit showed up, everything was different after that. And my parents had an important role, of course, in sowing the seed and in laying the foundation and praying and praying and praying like crazy. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit that changed my life. It wasn't my parents on their own, although God used them, certainly. So it's understanding that 
that as individuals to live out this Christian life, we need the power of the Spirit. As people who are sharing Jesus with others, we need the power of the Spirit. As a church, we need the power of the Spirit if we want to see this area come to Jesus. It's going to be the Holy Spirit who does the work. Our job, like the apostles, is to pray like we've never prayed before, to get on our face and fast and pray. I mean, to take 10 days, I mean, it, it means they're not working for 10 days, right? Like, they're not... They're not engaging in their hobbies, and I'm not giving that to you as a formula to do, but there was something in them that said, for God to move, we are going to pray like we've never prayed before, and we're going to pray with others like we've never prayed before. And so if we're not seeing the power of the Spirit move in our lives, the first question is, what does our prayer life look like right now? And are we even close to what they were doing? And I don't think we can be, maybe, because we do have jobs and things, but you know, they understood that all the power is going to come from him. And we said last week, when the Holy Spirit moves, our job is to pray like crazy and then just be available and say, Lord, you can use us as part of this if you want. And if we make ourselves available, the Holy Spirit will do all the work and Jesus will get all the glory. And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be about any of us getting the attention. It should be about Jesus getting. It shouldn't be that I'm leading people to Jesus because I'm such a smooth talker. No, the Holy Spirit does the work. Our job is to seek that power and to press in and to wait for that. E.M. Bounds uh, talked about prayer often. He was a Methodist uh, pastor in the States in the 1800s. And so he said this like 200 years ago. So this is not just a 21st century issue. But he said in the 1800s, what the church does not need is more methods, new novel gimmicks, new methodologies. What the church needs is men and women who are available to the Holy Spirit. Men and women who are powerful in prayer. And then God will do whatever he wants to do through that. But we have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to understand in humility that my job is to humble myself and seek him like I've never sought him before. And then he's going to get all the glory and I'm going to be more than okay with that because all I really want to see is the Holy Spirit move. All I really want to see is people come to Jesus. All I really want to see is my life shaped more and more towards holiness, and I can't do that on my own. I need the power of the Spirit to show up in my life. And this picture in the New Testament of water being poured out, of being filled with the Spirit, being refilled with the Spirit, the question for all of us is where is that happening in your life? And certainly that happens here on a Sunday morning. We will open up the altars in a little while. Anyone who just wants to pray that simple prayer of, I want to be refilled with the Spirit, we encourage you to come on up. I don't know why you would ever walk away from someone wanting to pray for you, under any circumstances. If someone says, hey, can I pray for you? The answer is not, I got to go. The answer is, of course. Why would you not want prayer? Why would you not seek that? And one of the things that we are praying for people, especially right now in this season, is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we're understanding, you know what, by our own strength, we're not actually accomplishing all that much in our lives or our ministry or our family or whatever on our own, where there is a piece that's missing. And the apostles understood, you know what, we're just going to pray and wait till the Spirit shows up. And when that happens, then everything's going to change from there. So as the Spirit moves at Pentecost, verse 4, something unusual happens. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They start talking languages that they don't know. Uh, and many of us in the room have that gift. We did a, a series on spiritual gifts back in the fall, and we defined the gift of tongues as a gift that is to speak or to pray in a language unknown to the speaker by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Paul would unpack it a lot more in 1 Corinthians 14. 
And so it's an unusual gift if you didn't. I grew up Pentecostal, so I remember this in church before I remember worship songs. Like, that's just part of the culture there. And so it's not really unusual to me. I understand if you're coming from different places, that might seem like a bit of a strange thing. But it is a biblical gift, and we see it in the book of Acts, and we see it encouraged elsewhere in Scripture. And so we do believe that that is a gift for today. And it's a bit of a hard one to get your head around, again, if you're new to it. But uh, for those of us who do speak in tongues, you understand it's not like, the Holy Spirit just kind of takes over and you have no control. Uh, you open your mouth and you begin to make sounds and then dis different sounds start to come out uh, and there's a flow to it that is just different and it, it's, it's a bit abstract for sure. It's a bit mystical, uh, but this is a biblical gift. And so uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14 and we would see in Acts chapter 2 that the gift works a few different ways. Sometimes it is someone who is speaking a known language that they don't know, like in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and so you're speaking in a language that you don't have any understanding of but someone who speaks that language hears it and understands it. Uh, in this case, we know from this text, what they were hearing the apostles say was they were declaring the glories of God. And there was something about that that caught their attention. So that is there. Uh, another way that this gift works, Paul unpacks in 1 Corinthians 14, is sometimes it might be a heavenly language, an unknown language here on earth. And so to speak it out, and then someone will have an interpretation of it, because interpreting the gift of tongues is another gift of the Spirit. And then from there, Paul says, we also can pray with this language. And so sometimes you might hear people talk about their, their heavenly language or their prayer language or their spiritual language. And that's when we pray prayers to God in a language we don't know. The Holy Spirit prays through us. And that's what's so powerful about this gift is that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. He says prophecy is better, but I wish you all spoke in tongues uh, because to pray to God in tongues is to pray perfect prayers every single time because the Holy Spirit is praying through you. And there are times where I go, I don't have the words to pray into this. I don't know what to pray for for this person. I don't know how to pray into this situation. But the Holy Spirit comes and prays through. And you know, because the Bible says the Holy Spirit knows knows the heart of God. He knows what God wants. He's praying flawless prayers for you every time. And again, growing up in a, a more charismatic tradition, uh, there was a bit of an unhealthy, perhaps, expectation about tongues in that stream, but I really wanted that gift. And so from the time I got saved to the time I got, the gift was two years. And I came up to the altar every single Sunday and that's what I was praying for. Sometimes other things as well. But I was praying for it every single Sunday. And, and, and honestly felt nothing and, and experienced nothing for two years. And then one day I was in my car and it just came and it just happened. Uh, and so I just encourage you, whatever you're praying for, the altar is a safe place to do that. And don't quit after three times if the prayer doesn't get answered. Right? There's a picture of prayer that Jesus uses. He uses a parable of you know, a next-door neighbor who needs something in the middle of the night and coming over to the neighbor's house and knocking on the door because they just really need that thing. They're not willing to wait till morning. And the owner of the house says, come back tomorrow. And they say, no, I need it now, and I'm not going away until I actually get it. Jesus says, this is what prayer is like. It's kind of annoying, right? It's getting annoying, that sound. And you go back over and over and over and over and over. And the picture is, like their picture really seems to be, along with the parable of the persistent widow, that you just nag heaven. And nag's a negative word, obviously, but you keep at it. Like a woman who won't quit up getting her justice, like a neighbor who won't 
quit until the door gets open. You keep at heaven until it happens. You don't give up after a few times. The apostles have this incredible experience in the spirit. They waited 10 days. Like, I don't know. I've been in like eight-hour prayer meetings. That feels really long. And even when the Holy Spirit's moving, you, there's a point where you're like, okay, this is a full work day that we're spending at this. And that's maybe the longest I've ever spent at one stretch. And so to do that for longer than that, and as day bleeds into day, bleeds into day, bleeds into day, like, isn't it amazing? Aren't we glad that after eight days, they didn't just say, well, nothing's happening, guys. Let's pack it in. At day nine, they didn't say, all right, well, it's, I mean, it's, that's a lot of prayer and nothing's happening. Because on day 10, God had ordained, your answer is coming. And we say this all the time. Today could be the day your answer is coming. And if someone wants to pray for you about anything, today could be the day. And even if it's not, that doesn't mean we should just go, well, whatever, and give up. Because if we want to see the power of the Spirit moving in a way that actually transforms our lives, our people's lives, our kids' lives, our community's lives, then there's an element of prayer to it that I think most of us are probably missing. And when you get the, this picture of the apostles is, oh, they just understood all the power is coming from God, and my main job is to connect with that power. That's the most important thing that I can do is connect with the power of God, and prayer is going to be a big part of that. As these languages are coming, uh, there's something very cool going on on a few different levels. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 11, we don't preach on this story a lot. It's more of a Sunday school story. But in Genesis chapter 11, there is just one people group in the world. There are no nations. There are no differences. They speak one language. There's just one group uh, descended from the originals. And they start to build a tower. And they say, we are going to build something that reaches into the heavens. We will build a great name for ourselves. We will glorify ourselves. And God says, this actually isn't a good thing. That people are turning their back on me. They're totally self-focused. And they are going to do this thing. And God seems to be saying, and they're going to do it. Like, they will actually accomplish this. And then that'll be the end. Uh, human pride is taking over in a way that is not good. And so the Bible says that that's where God gave different languages. He confused the languages so that they couldn't understand each other anymore. And in verse 9 of Genesis 11, it says, that's why it was called Babel, the tower, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So that is the beginning of nations. That is the beginning of different people groups. That's the beginning, of course, of different languages. And that's the beginning of a ton of divisions. Vision. Because even as God did that to actually kind of keep us safe from ourselves, human evil uh, causes us to turn on people now who are different than us, and wars begin to get fought, and greed begins to take over, and invasions, and different things. And so there is this scattering that happens because of human sin. And the, the main part of that when it starts is that the languages get scattered. So now we cannot understand each other anymore, and because of that there is division because of our sin. But what begins to happen on this first day of Pentecost, the first day of the church, is the Holy Spirit actually comes and binds the languages back together again. There's still different languages, but there's a unity to it that wasn't there before. Because God is creating an ecclesia, a gathering, a community that is not about one nation or one people or one group. That there is a church being formed that is from every tribe and every nation, every language, being united with one voice that says Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so as the Holy Spirit moves in this day, there's something about the languages that's being recaptured now, where the Holy Spirit, who at one point divided the languages of the world, is now uniting them together with one voice, and they are all declaring the glory of God. Different languages, literally, but they are all saying the same thing. And it's starting now to, to bring a, a unity there that was broken, that where the nations were scattered and divided, God is building a church that crosses all of those lines. And maybe you've had the experience, as I have, where you go to a different country, you meet Christians of a different language or of a different race, and there is something about meeting those people where you go, oh, I feel like I've known you my whole life. Even though we don't speak the same language, even though we are very, we've never met, but there is a, a bonding in the Spirit, that the ecclesia is the community of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is bringing together. And these languages become very important. Verse 5 says that now there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven, that because it was feast time, people were coming from all over, they were bringing their tithes, they were bringing their sacrifices, and the timing of God is so incredible. The picture of this is so beautiful because this is the festival of harvest. They are celebrating the harvest. They are literally coming into town to celebrate the harvest, and on this day, God is beginning the harvest on a whole other level. It is the day that the harvest of souls begins as the church begins. And as they come in from all these different parts of the world, uh, they are captured by this Holy Spirit thing that is going on. Verse 6 and 7. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Like, they don't understand why these Galileans, who were viewed as backwards, uneducated hicks, are like flawlessly speaking their own language from the land that they came from. It doesn't make any sense to them. Galileans were not known for their savvy. They were not known for their education. And yet in this moment, they are speaking foreign languages fluently, which there's no way they would have studied. There were no schools in Galilee. They didn't do that up there. Uh, and so these Galileans are doing something they shouldn't be able to do. And that, of course, is the whole point, because the Holy Spirit is doing what only the Holy Spirit can do. And the pictures that Acts and other parts of the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit, the, the metaphors and the images, uh, are things along the lines of fire. And fire is a force that cannot be stopped once it gets going. Water can be a force that cannot be stopped, right? We're seeing flooding all over Ontario. When water starts moving, you can't stop it. Wind, there's nothing we can do about it when wind starts blowing, right? It, it takes things down. It takes your roof off. Like wind, these are powerful, powerful forces that we can't really do that much about once they start moving. And they're just the reminder to us that the Holy Spirit needs to do what only the Holy Spirit can do that he is the power that we need, and, and we need to get on board with where he's going uh, and not the other way around. And so as these people come together, verses 8 through 11, how is it with these Galileans that we are each hearing our native language? And I won't read them all again. I did so good the first time. We'll stop. But we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. There is something that catches their ear. Uh, and again, if you were in a foreign land where nobody spoke English, 
and you were in a busy marketplace, and then you heard someone of that race speaking fluent English, it might catch your attention, right? You're going, I know that sound. I know those words. And they are declaring the glory of God. It is all there. And so all of these nations that have come in are going to experience this. And just spoiler alert, thousands of them are about to come to Jesus through this story. And just how God has worked all this out, he chose to do this on a day when all the nations were going to be gathered in Jerusalem they're going to get saved by the thousands and then they're going to go home and they're going to take a new gospel with them when they go that they have been captured by this they're going to be saved and then they're going to go back and they're going to take Jesus with them there was something about this uh, that was just perfectly timed by God uh, as he worked this out almost done verse 12 and 13 amazed and perplexed they asked one another what does this mean some however made fun of them and said they have had too much wine uh, there's not really much in the Bible by way of formula. Starting next week, we're going to hear Peter start to explain a little bit of why this is happening and what's going on. But there is a bit of a model or a formula in the book of Acts, if you want to call it that. And it's essentially this. It's not about the people themselves. It's not about how great they are. It is the Holy Spirit moves in a way that only he can move. And then people gather around and say, hey, what's going on with this thing we just saw? And someone stands up and says, Jesus is the reason for this power. And then people get saved like crazy. Like if Acts does have a, a formula, that's what it is. The spirit moves as only he can. Someone stands up and says, Jesus is why the spirit is moving. And then people come to Jesus like crazy. And so that is what's happening here, and that's what happens over and over and over again. Uh, the crowd starts to come and say, what does this mean? And Peter's about to stand up and say, Jesus is why. You're seeing this, and here's how this all works. And many are going to come to Jesus shortly. The other side of that is that some mock them and make fun of them. They're drunk. This is just chaos. This is noise. There's babbling going on. Uh, there's just no, no thought that this could be God or anything. And just a, a good reminder for all of us. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to the world. Uh, we will get mocked as Christians sometimes. Sometimes when God is moving, it's very easy for it to be mocked. Um, our job is to try not to care that much and not let it sway us too much. Because Jesus was mocked as he went to his crucifixion. The apostles were mocked as they tried to live out this gospel. And we are not better than Jesus. We are not better than the apostles. Sometimes to walk with Jesus is to be mocked. Uh, there will be struggles there. And so for those of us, we've had experiences maybe with family members or friends or whoever. Um, our job is to hold true to what we believe, and our job is to walk it out and to continue to be faithful. Uh, the mockery of man can hurt, but it's ultimately not what we're to be concerned about. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. If you have any questions, uh, please be sure to let us know. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. We are happy to keep this conversation going. The ongoing challenge, I think, as we go through the book of Acts and look at the church, the ecclesia, the community, uh, what does it mean to be the community of God? What does it mean to be the community of faith? Uh, part of that conversation has to be where is the Holy Spirit at in your life? Where are you seeking him? Where are you taking whatever the equivalent of 10 days of constant prayer? Where are you seeking him like that? Where are you encountering him? And if you're not, how are you seeking him? Because he promises that he will reward those who diligently seek him. But that word diligently is the important one. 
we keep going back and we keep going back and we keep seeking more? Where are you being refilled with the Spirit in your life? And maybe today in a few minutes, that's a great place to start because we have people who are here who are trained to pray and they would love to pray for you to be filled with the Spirit again. So we're going to worship a little bit more. Worship is one of the ways we can encounter the Spirit and be refilled and then we'll pray together. What would you stand with me, please? The words will be up on the screen and we encourage you to sing along. Before we close our service with a word of prayer, um, as Pastor Chris said earlier, we are going to have a team of people here at the front uh, to pray with you guys. So I encourage you to come forward as we seek to be a people who want God's presence in our lives and in this place um, as we meet. And if you are not wanting prayer, I just ask that you visit outside of the auditorium just to give uh, those people praying uh, just peace and quiet as they are doing so. But before we leave, let's just pray. Father, we want to know you. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. Lord, that you allow us to walk in the power that you have in the same power that beat death, Lord. I thank you that you just allow us to be a part of that, even though we do not deserve it. But because of your love and your grace for us, Lord, those things. So Father, we praise you for that and I ask that we would seek you, Lord. That we would ask you to reveal yourself to us. That your Holy Spirit would dwell inside of us, Lord, and that it would be so contagious, Lord, that it would overflow. So Father, I ask that as we leave this building, that that passion we have for you would continue, Lord. That it wouldn't just be within these four walls, Lord, but that we would seek to know you in all areas of our lives. So Father, we give you this time and we ask that you go before us in your name. Amen. Have a good Sunday, everyone.